It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. W. Clement Stone once said, Truth will always be truth regardless of lack of understanding, disbelief, or ignorance. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we'll look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me as always is Jonathan, my co-host for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. So, Jonathan, what is our topic for today's episode? This is part three of a multi-part series, and our question is, has the Bible been mistranslated and misunderstood? And our theme text is found in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Okay, so part three of a what's going to end up being a multiple-part series, we'll talk about that later, Has the Bible Been Mistranslated and Misunderstood? So coming up in today's podcast, determining what belongs in the Bible and what doesn't can get dicey, especially when we talk about the words of Jesus. Are there really things he is credited with saying that he didn't say? We'll find out about that in just a few minutes. Is it possible for a mistranslation to be verified as correct and have the accurate version be correct as well? Weird, huh? Well, we're going to talk about that in about 30 minutes. Does the Bible actually tell us how many books it's supposed to have? Have you ever heard of Bible numerology? Hear the fascinating answer to this in about 45 minutes, but first, let's get our bearings. In part two of our series, we reviewed a list of tools students of the Bible can use to study the original languages of Scripture. These tools enable non-experts like us to unlock the Greek and Hebrew of the Bible to understand what the original inspired words mean and how they're used. When we examine what are called spurious texts, writings that are not part of the Holy Writ but are additions that came into some manuscripts over time— After that, we looked at texts that are translated poorly and how one can identify these. Lastly, we reviewed the the role of interpretation in translations that we can agree on. Today, our trek of discovery continues with a further review of mistranslations of biblical texts that camouflage important details of the Bible's true teaching. Once again, our single goal here is to understand the will and the mind of our holy God by harmonizing every text in Scripture. Everyone we want to harmonize. And Jonathan, we've brought back our dear friend and brother in Christ, David Stein, to join us for part three. David, are you tired of us yet? Not yet at all. No, (laughs) I've been a Bible student for over 60 years, and, uh, you know, it's just wonderful to uh, work with you two brothers in Christ. And, uh, you know, as an elder in Allentown, it gives me a lot of opportunities to serve. But coming on Christian Questions is one of the highlights. Well, good. We're glad to have you. We are. Well, today we begin with, did Jesus really say this? Okay, it's almost kind of like a, a game show. Okay, did Jesus really say this? Well, there's, this is not a game show, but this is, this is a serious question. Did Jesus really say this? Pay close attention because some of this may be surprising. So, Jonathan, let's jump right in. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. 
But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Okay, so David, did Jesus really say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing? Well, Rick, on the surface, it seems like this is something Jesus would be. Jesus is very forgiving spirit. But there are several reasons to doubt this. Uh, let's take first the manuscript reasons. It is missing from several very important manuscripts and later works. For example, it's not found in the uh, Codex Alexandris, the Alexandrian. It is not found in the Codex Vatican 1209 manuscript. And there's a Greek New Testament called UBS. And UBS is a modern compilation of many manuscripts done by an international and interconfessional committee. And they omit it entirely with full uh, confidence. So it does exist in some manuscripts. It's not that you can't find it. But the more quality manuscripts, they are those that exclude it. So there's a definite question about its authenticity. Okay, so you got the authenticity question from the manuscript perspective. What about questioning the legitimacy of these words credited to Jesus just based on their, their content? I mean, it sounds like a nice thing to say. Well, this is really a nice question and, and a good way to look at what Jesus said, because on the manuscript, it's, it's, a, it's a little uncertain. Uh, again, as we've already mentioned, on the most quality that's missing. But would Jesus say such a thing? On the surface, when you start to think about it, it seems inappropriate. There is uh, no repentance required from among those that are murdering Jesus. You know, when you look at forgiveness in Scripture, repentance always seems to be part of the equation that's necessary. And uh, scriptures seem very consistent in teaching that. So that's the first thing. Secondly, and, and perhaps more importantly, if Jesus had uttered this request for, for forgiveness, it wasn't granted. The mm -hmm. wrath of God came upon Jerusalem in 70 AD, and this demonstrates that no forgiveness had been forthcoming. The, the, uh, this is evidence that he didn't really make that request. And sadly, the judgment of Jerusalem did fulfill another request. Okay, so just to, to, to wrap up what you're saying, you're saying it would not have been an appropriate uh, request because God did not answer it. And we, we don't ever see Jesus not being answered. You know, Correct. So that, that's important. But you, you mentioned another request. Jonathan, that's Matthew 27, 25. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Ah. Okay, and so you're saying in, in A.D. 70, you have the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the pulling of favor from Israel. So the bottom line is there are good reasons to reject this verse as being spurious then. Indeed, and the, the destruction on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Was, was profoundly sad. You can read the history of this. This was a terrible judgment yeah. that came upon the nation collectively as a whole. Um, we could go to another direction and say that Jesus opened the door for the Christians to get out of there in time, which they did. But nevertheless, the wrath of God remained on them. So uh, God did hold that nation responsible for putting Jesus on the cross and murdering him. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Okay, so, so David, we, we're saying, no, Jesus didn't say those words. Well, what about the words of Stephen when he was being stoned to death? Let's compare those words, because there's a great similarity here. Jonathan, let's go to Acts 7, 59 to 60. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. David, it's similar, but it's different. Go ahead. It, it, yes, and the differences here are important to know. They, they're subtle, but they're there. 
the uh, the spurious text from Jesus says, "Lord, forgive them." Right? He's, he he just is asking for forgiveness, and that's kind of a legal question, you know. On what basis do you forgive? As we mentioned earlier, you you forgive on the basis of repentance, but there should be some reason for forgiveness. But what Stephen says here, don't hold the sin against them. In other words, he acknowledges this is sin. They have they have illegally put him to death. But nevertheless, he recognized that there's profound ignorance on the part of those that were acting that way. Many of them, like like Saul, as we see a little bit later in the Christian age there, thought he was doing the right thing by upholding uh, the purity of the Jewish religion. And so it's in that basis that Stephen says, uh, don't hold it against them. And of this, there's no question. Stephen did say this. This is very much authentic. Okay, so very, very different, but Jesus did not say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Okay, staying in the same chapter in Luke 23, we're going to ask again, did Jesus really say this? Jonathan, let's go to Luke 23, verse 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Okay, now, now, David, we know that Jesus absolutely did say these words. There's no controversy about their inclusion here in the Gospel of Luke, but there is an issue that we're going to get into that actually has to do with punctuation. And an important point here, sorry, David, before you go on, we have uh, on episode 988 titled, Did Jesus and the Thief Go from the Cross to Paradise?, a wonderful episode. Go to ChristianQuestions.com, episode 988. You must listen to that. Okay, thanks for that. David, what about this verse? Well, as you said, Rick, this is in the Scripture. There's no question. Did Jesus say this? Yes, he did. However, there are some uh, complicating factors here that we need to sort out. First of all, the oldest copies of both the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament were generally written with no punctuation. Uh, but it's even more complex than that. The ancient Greeks did not use spaces between words and paragraphs. Uh, the text was one continuous string of letters with maybe a blank line between sections. And again, one more observation. They didn't use what we call lowercase today, uppercase and lowercase. Everything was written in capital letters. Here's an example in English. Okay, so David wrote out a sentence for me, and here's what it says. Uh, and it's all capital letters, no spaces. And this is, hi, Rick and Jonathan, can you read this or is sit in sit fair able? <laughs> Get the show notes and you'll see what I mean. Okay, that's yeah, a difficult yeah, you thing. You did a good job on that. I mean, it is just one string of letters. Right. Uh, when you start to look, you, your brain can start to dissect them. But on this, it's just a string of letters. Right. So the translator, when they go back to the original uh, manuscripts and whatnot, the first thing they have to do is identify the separate words. They have to start breaking this up, uh, as we do in more modern, and then subjectively add punctuation in case. Now, with this in mind, uh, here is the verse under consideration uh, once again. Okay, so again, all capitals with no spaces. And he said to him, True Lias and A Toyo, today you shall be with me in paradise. I got paradise right. Okay, that's exactly what you would see if you grabbed a manuscript. Yeah, that's crazy. That's it. So the first thing, as we mentioned, you have to do is break it up into individual words. So if we do that, we have... And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. 
Oh, that's so much clearer, isn't it? Yes, now, it is. now at least we've, we've got a full sentence that makes sense to us. Now, uh, in order to help a little bit more, we have to add the case. That is, we have to uh, capitalize certain words and the, uh, the other words that, or the other letters that come after that have to be in lowercase. Okay, when you add the case now, you know, the last one I read, it feels like you're being yelled at because it's all capital letters. <laughs> okay, this is, and he said to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. You can, you can get a better feel for it just by using lowercase letters. Yeah, and in fact, if we went no further, we would have a really nice line of truth, a line that Jesus said. But what's important in this verse, and as we'll see, very important, is punctuation. Remember, in the original Hebrew, there was no punctuation. No commas, no periods, no hyphens, nothing. So now we have to add punctuation, which means we have to choose where to put the comment, uh, commas in. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Very nice. So uh, if the listeners listen carefully, they would have heard a pause where Rick stopped and, or where Rick paused and there's a comma there. We put the commas in. Now, there was two commas in a period that we did in this case. Now, please note where that second comma was. Rick, would you read it one more time? And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Now notice, and he said to him, pause, I say to you today, pause, you shall be with me in paradise. Now, if you look in almost every translation, that's not where they put the second comma. Right. They put the second comma before today. And so in that case, it would be, and he said to him, pause, truly I say to you, pause, today you shall be with me in paradise. Well, that certainly changes what it, uh, what it means here, yeah. doesn't it? Yes. Okay, so let, let's lay out some facts about this. Jonathan, go ahead. Well, f- first point, Jesus died on Friday. That was today to him. Now, we have to think about this because th- we are now trying to use facts to interpret where the comma should be. So Jesus was put to death on a Friday. Dry- he died at 3 o'clock Friday afternoon. He was in the grave. And then, well, let's go on. Next fact, Jonathan. Well, he went into the grave and was there for parts of three days until Sunday. Well, that's right. Yeah. So that, that means that today for him ended and tomorrow he was in the grave. And the day after that was when he was raised to life. And I think that's our third fact. He's raised to life on Friday. So here's Sunday. the question. Did Jesus come into his kingdom the same day he died? What do you think? No. No, no, no. he couldn't have. Now, that's very uh, in, uh, prominently important. Manifestly, no. So he could not have told the thief that today you will be, be with me in paradise because Jesus didn't get there on that Friday. He didn't get there on that, on that Saturday. He couldn't have gotten there before he was raised on Sunday. And that's the reason, a very simple and logical reason why the comma has to go after the word today. So once more, let me read it the way that we understand it should be to be consistent. And he said to him, comma, truly I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. The placement of a simple comma makes a big difference. <laughs> so not only are we focusing on words that belong or don't belong, we're also focusing on the expressions so we can get them exactly according to Scripture. Jesus' words are prof- of profound importance, so we need to pay profound attention to their authenticity and their meaning. We can see the importance of verifying Jesus' words. 
But does that hold true for his actions as well? While we're not dealing with all the words attributed to Jesus that need review today, we do want to look at one entire account that is attributed to Jesus that needs examination. As always, we want to be careful to stay true to the most ancient and authentic sources of scriptures that we have available. So we're still in the the did Jesus really say this category, but we're adding did Jesus really say this and did Jesus really do this Here's an entire section of Scripture, and it goes from John 7.53, which is the last verse of John 7, through John 8.11. So, Jonathan, we're going to read this from the New American Standard Bible, and we're not going to break this up the way we normally do, but we're, we're asking the question, did Jesus really say and do what's in these verses? Go ahead. Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did not one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Now, the in the New American Standard Bible, these verses are in a bracket. And so, David, you know, there, there's this is an odd treatment for Scripture. Why do many translation have these particular verses bracketed? Well, as you said, uh, Rick, many do have it bracketed, and it's simply because the inclusion in the Gospel of John is debatable. Let's again first review the manuscript evidence. Number one, it is not in the earliest manuscripts, with one exception. Number two, in the manuscripts that it is found in, it is not found in one place. Some put it after John 7.36. One puts it after John 7.44. Some have it in Luke, after Luke 21.38. Okay, okay, so hold on. So first of all, it's there. there is one exception with an early manuscript, but you're saying that in, in a lot of the manuscripts, it just is, these verses appear in different places. Yeah, there isn't a consistency there, and that's one flag to make us wonder, is, is this correct? Okay, all right, go ahead, keep, keep going. Okay, the Good News Translation omits it entirely. In fact, the secretary of the Good News Translation Committee wrote, and I quote, the evidence for the non-Johannine origin of the pericope of the adulteress is overwhelming. By the way, that word pericope is just an academic way of saying that section of it. Okay. So the Good News Committee uh, determined that it, it, there wasn't, nearly enough evidence to have it included. And one more, manuscripts uh, all the way back to 200 AD omit it, and there's no evidence till almost 500 AD. This is almost like uh, 450 years uh, after uh, it would have happened. 
And uh, that manuscript uh, that it contained is a Codex Bizae. Again, notice it, 500 centuries later. So it doesn't appear to be part of the Gospel of John. And though we may speculate other sources for its inclusion, I think we can be comfortably uh, consider it spurious to John. Okay, so what we're saying, folks, is that according to manuscript evidence, these verses don't hold water. They don't show themselves to have the same marks of authenticity, the same ancient recording of authenticity that the rest of the scriptures do have. This is important because, you know, a lot of us look at those verses and it's like, what do you mean they don't belong? Well, it's the kind of thing that we have to be really careful of, and you call it the way the manuscripts read it. And that's what we really need to do here. Okay, so David, we've looked at it from a manuscript perspective. What about a logical perspective? And, you know, one of our CQ contributors wrote in about this, this, uh, um, this, this event that is, you know, credited to Jesus and these words that are credited to Jesus. And in her writing, she, she said, I've got a real problem with this. Forget the manuscript thing. It just doesn't make sense to me. And we're only going to read a few of her questions. She has some really good questions. So, Jonathan, let's, let's get started with some of those questions. Would they have taken an adulteress into the temple? You know, this is a great question. The temple was the holiest place in all of Israel, the holiest place in Jerusalem. It was kept scrupulously clean. I mean, physically clean, hygienically clean, as, as well as ritually clean. The, the uh, scribes and Pharisees and priests were, uh, we, we would almost describe as being paranoid about it, but they were very, very careful. So to have someone accused of adultery, one of the, the worst sins, breakers of one of the Ten Commandments, to break them, to bring them into the holy ground, eh, it starts to question that a little bit. Okay, so th- that, that's an interesting question. Next question that she asks is, if Jesus was teaching, wouldn't he have been teaching in the first Gentile court? We know it was so sacred, everyone removed their sandals. So yeah. what, what about the first Gentile court? Because when it says in the court, it kind of sounds like, well, yeah, the court, you know, the court. But there's more than one court here, right? Oh, yeah. There, there, was a, there were several different courts. And again, depending upon who you were, you could advance so, so far. If you were a Gentile, you could only go as far as the Gentile court. Uh, even today, if you go to Jerusalem and you go to what we call the Wailing Walls, that's not the, what they term, but they have a segregation there between men and women, and, and they're not allowed to mix and whatnot. And this type of segregation goes all the way back to the time of the temple. So within the court itself, uh, there were different courts. And again, all of them were considered holy, but some holier than other. The next question our CQ contributor asked was, would they have thrown her down in front of the listeners to whom Jesus was teaching? That, that certainly seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? Uh, such a, uh, we describe it almost like a violent act, uh, not, a, not a very... Uh, uh, understanding act, or at least an act trying to understand what justice is. So again, we have another question about uh, how reasonable it sounds. Okay, and the last question we're going to deal with here is, you know, it, the scripture says in, in John, the, the scriptures that we're questioning, it says in the very act, they took her in the very act, and implies she was having relations with a married man and a scribe or Pharisee went into the house, I mean, saw her and took her out of the house. Would a man of faith have actually gone into another man's house and removed her from that house? Yeah, that, that's not uh, very convincing at all. You know, in, uh, looking again back in history and, and whatnot, when, when someone was found in the act, it was just u- usually found by the faithful mate, either a, a wife finding her husband in an act of adultery or vice versa. 
but never a priest or somebody from outside coming in. That doesn't ring true at all. So, David, when we look at the logical evidence of these verses, and very, very especially the, the manuscript evidence, it's pretty obvious they simply don't belong in the Holy Scriptures. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's one thing for, to say, well, you know, we have some legitimate questions. I mean, if we removed all questions and textual evidence, we could get lessons out of this. As we said earlier, Jesus was very forgiving, and this seems to be to paint that same picture. So we don't have a problem with that. But as was mentioned earlier, our desire is to find out what is the Word of God, what it is that Jesus actually said, so that we don't have the confusion of, of uh, questionable flows. Okay, good, good, good. Interesting. So folks, uh, again, CQ show notes are going to help you put all of this together with all the details. Let's change gears a moment here, and let's look at our theme text for examination. Now, our theme text, Jonathan, is one we, we've quoted many, many times, and we never question it much. Now, David comes, and now we have a question, okay? So <laughs> let's, let's reread the theme text. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. David? Well, on the surface, we have a simple statement here of Scripture that all Scripture is inspired of God. And this is used throughout the many denominations and, and many uh, Christian perspectives. Almost every Christian will confess that he believes that the Bible is inspired. Right. I have a problem with that. But there's a subtle caveat here. When we, what do we do with certain statements in the Bible from enemies of God or recorded statements of false prophets? I mean, there's a scripture in, I believe it's in Psalms, says uh, uh, there is no God. Do we take that as it? Now, it says there the fool saith there is no God, but this is just an example. So what we would say is that there are historical things that are recorded that are not a direct result of God inspiring people to say these things, like the enemies of God and those that hate God or those that are enemies. When God wrote, or when Paul wrote that all scriptures inspired of God, there's a pretty simple uh, uh, solution to this in exactly the way that it's translated. Okay, so we read it from the New American Standard Bible, and it read, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. I'm just going to read that part. So, Jonathan, let's compare that, 2 Timothy 3.16, with the American Standard Version. Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, which is in righteousness. Okay, so there's a difference. It says every scripture inspired of God, not all scripture is inspired by God. And what is this other translation? I wrote down the letters. I don't remember what the translation is, Jonathan, for the next one. BBE. Bible in basic English. Oh, Bible in basic English. Jonathan, let's read that translation of the same verse, and then David, take us home on it. Every holy writing which comes from God is of profit for teaching, for training, for guiding, for education in righteousness. Okay. Now, do you notice the difference between these two and the theme scripture from the NASB? It is the placement of the word is. All scripture is inspired by God, or all scripture inspired by God is. You see, that subtle difference sort of focuses on that. Whatever is in the Bible that is inspired of God, and by the way, in the Greek, that means God breathes. I really love that. God breathes. So all of those things that are God breathes, that direct uh, statements by God or the direct statements of God's prophets and whatnot, these are inspired. There's no question about it. The writings of the apostles uh, and all of these, uh, the, the gospels, all of these other things there. This is what's inspired of God and this is what is helpful. The things that are historical references or statements by 
enemies of God, things like that, they don't come into the category of being inspired by God, but just simply in historical record, that's part of what God wants us to know about. So really the key here is just clarifying, and it's, it is that little clarification that just makes it that much more accurate, that little tweak that says all Scripture inspired by God is profitable for teaching. So what we have is this sense of the strength of the body of Scripture, and the fact—and this is why, folks, this is why we are so particular about figuring out what belongs and what doesn't, because we want to lay our faith on a foundation of words that are God-breathed, as you, as you said, David, and that's such a beautiful way to, to explain it. So this really helps us to see this, this in, a, in a much better way. So just a little detail here. Uh, we, we've had big sections that needed to be removed. We have this little detail here. The bottom line is, let's make sure we are focusing on the Word of God. You know, sometimes errors are big and sometimes they're subtle. The key is to recognize them and learn the truth. Are there any mistranslations in scriptures that are correct in spite of being incorrect? Huh? <laughs> Look, this sounds like a weird question, but we wouldn't ask it if it didn't have validity. As we walk through the challenges of understanding the Bible's authenticity, we want to be sure to stop and examine every kind of potential discrepancy. If we want truth, we need to examine all the evidence. And so, again, this is why we're going at this in so many different ways, because we want to present to you as listeners evidence of finding the truth of Scripture. We're trying to do this without bias. We're trying to do this with the, with the clarity of thinking that says, whatever the Bible says, we will follow. The key is, what is it that the Bible says? Not interpretations say, not misplaced verses say, but what does the Bible itself say? So, we're going to get into David, this one, this one is odd, okay? You called this a curiosity. <laughs> Here is one curiosity of translation, which we believe is the only occurrence of its kind in Scripture. All right, so Jonathan, we're going to read through Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure." Okay, so now, if we're reading this in the New American Standard Bible, we notice that parts of the verse are all in caps. Okay, why is that? That's the translator's method of letting us know that he's quoting from the Old Testament. So, what Old Testament verse is he quoting from? And, you know, we, we spend a lot of time working on these things, Jonathan, finding the source of, of what was said in the New Testament that's verified, you know, by quoting the Old. Well, this case, it happens to be Psalm 40, verse 6. So, Jonathan, before you read Psalm 40, verse 6, just read the capitalized, the, the, the all-caps part of Hebrews 10, 5, and 6 one more time. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in whole burnt offerings— and for sin you have taken no pleasure. Okay, now read Psalm 40, verse 6, same New American Standard Bible. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Rick and Jonathan, do you see the problem here? Yeah. They don't match. 
it almost looks like Paul misquoted the, 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 the text. In fact, almost every English Bible you see will have the reference to ears and not a body prepared in that Psalm 40, verse 6 text. Okay, so Paul is misquoting Psalm 40, verse 6. What's, how, how is it that the Apostle Paul misquotes the psalm? What's the deal? <laughs> well, it's inconceivable that Paul would misquote it. In fact, you know, we were talking earlier that Paul does get a little bit loose uh, sometimes. In the first chapter of Hebrews, he said, somebody said somewhere. You know, <laughs> so he's, he, he's really trying to bring in the Old Testament. But here is the thing that there is a translation that is available that says the words that Paul quotes. And it is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. Okay, now we had talked about the Septuagint either last week or the week before. So David, just let's review. What is the Septuagint? Just remind us. Well, the term Septuagint means 70, and it refers to the 70 Jewish scholars who were commissioned by Ptolemy II to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Now, Greek was the prevailing world language at that time, so uh, th those that spoke Greek wanted to be able to read the Hebrew Bible into Greek. It was in general use in, in the first century in the time of the Apostle Paul. So Paul quoted from the Septuagint, which uh, we have a translation of the Septuagint into English. Okay, so let, let's go to that. Jonathan, let's read the Psalm 40, verse 6 from the Septuagint. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin thou didst not require. So that makes perfect sense, okay? Paul is exactly quoting the Septuagint, but not the Hebrew. Yeah, that, that's right. We see that Paul is being consistent here. He's, he's not making it up as he goes along, but he found a verse that fits the lesson that he wanted to use, and he pulled it in here. But it does raise another question. We have a dilemma here. Why did those 70 Jewish scholars translate it this way? When we see every, without exception, every other Hebrew text does not have this. So why do they do it? Well, that's a question that is kind of up in the air. But the curiosity that you introduce this section and starts to raise itself, that since Paul uses it, that means he authorizes it. Once it comes through the pen of Paul, now it's God-breathed, isn't it? We talked about it earlier. It's inspired. So the, the curiosity is simply this. We have two different versions of Psalm 40, verse 6, and yet they are both God-breathed. I don't know anywhere else in Scripture where you have this curiosity. Okay. Two different translations, yet they're both right. Okay, you know, just this, what this reminds me of very quickly in a scene from Fiddler on the Roof. And Tevye is talking to the men in the square, and he says, he's right. And somebody else says something else, and he says, he's right. And the third person says, he's right, and he's right. How can they both be right? And Tevye <laughs> says, you know, you're also right. <laughs> but, you know, how can they both be right? I guess that's, that's where I'm going with that. Well, this, this is, of course, a, a question for the ages. Let's uh, speculate. Let's see uh, what, if we can come up with an idea. Uh, first of all, when you start to look at the meaning of both of these verses, and when I say meaning, not just the words, but the application Paul is making, we find that there's a harmony, curiously enough, between them. The reference to the ears, which is in the Hebrew, not in the Septuagint, but the reference to the Hebrew uh, uh, custom 
of having one's ears opened, or we would use the word pierced, goes all the way back to the law that under the law, if a Hebrew became a slave, let me say, for example, that, Rick, you were, were not too careful with your finances, and uh, I had to bail you out, and so you, to pay me back, you say, well, I'll be your slave. Well, I would not be allowed to have you as a slave for more than six years. That was the law. Right. And that was exactly it. And so at the end of six years, I would send you out free. But now, if you were a slave that really liked the situation, and let's take a look at it from a larger standpoint. Suppose as a slave, I gave you a wife and you had children and whatnot. Well, at the end of the six years, you could go, go free, but your children and your wife may not be able to go free. Uh, and it may be that, this, that the master is really someone that's, uh, that's special. Then there was an arrangement, which we can read about in Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 and 6, by which the slave could stay in slavery. And uh, there was something about the way that this was shown that connects us right up with uh, Hebrews 40, verse 6. Okay, so Jonathan, before you read this verse, folks, pay attention here, because what David is suggesting is that what's mentioned in Exodus 21, 5 and 6 is going to give us a connectivity between those two differing translations. Let's, let's see how this works. Jonathan, let's go with that. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Ouch, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, doesn't sound very pleasant, doesn't it? But here's the thing. Uh, for that master to have such a slave is a is a great, I don't want to use the word advertisement, it's a great recommendation for what a good master he is, that this man wants to serve him forever. Uh, the scripture doesn't say, but the Jewish tradition says that they, there was some type of earring there that would mark uh, that, uh, that having the ear pierced uh, as a uh, as an indication of permanent slavery. So let's try and put this together now. So in this arrangement, the piercing of the ear represented total dedication. I'm going to use the word consecration because that's a Christian term, and it leads right up to what we want the point we want to make. A total commitment or consecration to the master to do his will out of love. Now let's go back to Jesus and his pre-human existence. The Heavenly Father needed someone to become a human sacrifice on earth. Now, the only way that could happen is somebody to volunteer. Uh, Jehovah doesn't go in for human sacrifice, no way. But if someone volunteered, then they would be given what's necessary to do that. Jesus volunteered. I think about that scripture in Isaiah. Here I am, send me. Right. Jehovah says, I need someone to go down to be a substitute for Adam. Jesus says, here I am, send me. So he is giving full commitment, full consecration to him. So what does the Father do to permit him to do that? He prepares him a body. He gives him a body. And of course, that body is the human body that Jesus was born in. He grew up to be a man. And then Jesus at his death is pierced, this time by nails, not a law, uh, not a, an all, but pierced unto his death. So you see the connection? That the, the arrangement here for permanent servitude out of love parallels exactly the giving of, of God to Jesus of a body that he could in turn sacrifice in order to provide the ransom. So two different uh, uh, translations, 
but they all have the same fundamental lesson behind them. You know, and it's interesting that the all he's he's uh, he shall bring into the doorpost, and you know, you 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 pierce him against the wood of the doorpost, and Jesus obviously was pierced on the wood of the cross. And so, when we look at it and we see it, we can see how Paul, because he is he is writing inspired words from God, is showing us a deeper lesson in that scripture. Go ahead, David. You, you know, there's one other point that we should say too that. Uh, the uh, Jewish tradition has that this arrangement of piercing the ear was done in a public place so that all could see it. And of course, Jesus' death was done in a public place where all could see as well. And you know, the, the fact that all could see it and he was pierced with an all and Jesus died for all, a little bit of a play on <laughs> words, but it just gives you the sense of the beauty of what the Apostle Paul is saying. So there's an interesting scenario that develops here, very unique in the scriptures, and that even taking the Septuagint, which translation-wise is off, it shows you a deeper lesson, and the Apostle Paul brings that to us. Very, very inspiring, very, very interesting. See, this is an example of following the authority of scripture to a deeper conclusion that we couldn't otherwise see. Let's look at the bigger picture. Does the Bible give us any evidence of its own completeness? Examining scriptural mistranslations and misunderstandings is an exercise in detail. We do it to affirm that we're studying scriptures and that, that are truly holy and completely representative of God's plan. The amazing thing is, when we back away from the small details and look at some whole Bible details, we are assured of the Bible's authenticity on a whole different level. So we're going to change gears here. We've been looking in and looking at details and focusing in on, the, on, on some little things. David, we're not going to now look at something that's big and very different. Let's examine details in God's Word that argue for its divine configuration, for its divine setting up of, of the books and so forth. Is there anything... God gives us to confirm that the 66 books of the Bible that we have are what exactly he intended us to have. Is there? I think the answer is yes on this. And let me say just a few words about, about the uh, subject from a high level we're going to look at here for a few minutes now. Uh, this is called Bible numerology. Now, numerology isn't for a lot of people. You know, they see it at superstition and uh, all kinds of, uh, of openness to interpret things any way you want. Uh, that's not the type of numerology we're talking. What we are talking about is the way God uses numbers in Scripture. And numbers have significance. Uh, we could do a whole program on the meaning of numbers. I think most Christians would say, if you asked them, what does seven represent? They say, oh, that, that represents divine perfection, divine completion. So the idea that numbers have representative uh, meanings is not new and it's not far out. Again, we can defend this from, from the Scriptures very nicely. But what we're going to take a look at is uh, the question, are there numbers in Scripture that seem to validate that the Bible that we have today, starting from the, uh, the 22 books of the Hebrew and the 27 books of the New Testament, the two books, Old and New Testament with 66 books, is there any evidence internal to the Scriptures that seem to validate that what we have is what we should have? and that we're not missing anything, and that we have what God wants in its entirety today. 
Okay, so what you're saying is you're going to we're going to embark to look on at some evidence that you're saying can give us a sense that we have exactly the right number of books, not one more, not one less. We're good with the inspired word of God. Okay. How are we going to do this? This is interesting. I'd like to know. So, let's begin with Hebrew scripture. How many books are there in the Hebrew Bible? Well, if you look at Hebrew Bibles today, and uh, there are several different uh, translations, that, English translations that are available, you'll find that they have 24 books in the Bible. Now, you may remember going all the way back to uh, part one of our series, uh, we were talking about why we have 39 books in the Old Testament, and the Jewish Hebrew Bible has less. And we mentioned there that it's either 22 or 24. Now, here's the thing. When we start looking at the uh, Old Testament, they call the Tanakh, the number of books that, uh, that we have today uh, is larger because they have broken up books in the Hebrew Bible into multiple books. I'll give just one example. Uh, the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations was one book. Today we have two books. Mm -hmm. uh, the 12 uh, prophets after Daniel, we got 12 books, they got one book. So that's, a, that's a, an example of how and why, again, by way of you, we have 39, and they had less than that. Okay, so we've got 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament. They had essentially 22 or 24, depending on. Okay, so, um, you know, right now you said the Hebrew, Hebrew Bibles have 24 books, but what about the original configuration of Hebrew, the Hebrew writings? Well, this is where it gets really interesting, and it really fits into uh, what God is speaking to us. If you go back to the time of Jesus, there is good evidence that there were 22, not 24 books, uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures that were in use in the time of Jesus. Uh, let me give one example. Uh, most Christians are familiar with the historian Josephus, who lived in the first century. Uh, he wrote uh, quite a bit on what happened back at that time, especially in connection with the judgment on Jerusalem and the attack of Romans, uh, Rome on Jerusalem that we spoke about a little bit earlier. But here's something that he wrote, and I quote, For we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting with one another, as the Greeks have, but only 22 books which contain the record of all times past, which are justly believed to be divine. Okay, so when, when we look at that, what you're saying is that even though Hebrew Bibles today have 24 books, when you go back to Josephus, and in his writings in the first century, he's reviewing it, and he's very matter-of-factly saying, look, we don't have all of these different contradictory stories like, like Greek literature. We have one group of books, it's 22 books, and it tells us everything we need to know. It's very matter-of-fact. He's not trying to make a big point. This is just, here, here are the facts of where we live right here, right now, today, back in the first century. So, And you had mentioned that it still has the same content, it's just a matter of a couple of things being combined. But it was called 22 books. Now, why are we making this big point? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> okay, uh, other, other proof on this, David. Well, let me add one more testimony uh, from an early uh, church father by the name of Origen. Uh, he added another important insight, which we're going to help make us make the connection that we want to make. And again, I'm going to quote from him now. This is the, uh, a quote from Origen. Nor must we fail to observe that not without reason, the canonical books are 22, according to the Hebrew tradition, the same in number as the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. 
For as the 22 letters may be regarded as an introduction to the wisdom and the divine doctrines given to men in those characters, so the 22 inspired books are an alphabet of the wisdom of God and an introduction to the knowledge of reality. That is fascinating stuff when you think about it. 22 letters in the alphabet of the Hebrew alphabet and 22 books of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, you almost don't need to comment too much about it. That 22 books, 22 letters, you know, is, is that a coincidence? You know, they measure up. And I really like the way Origen kind of uh, connected the two together. The an alphabet of the wisdom of God. That's a, that's a really nice saying. Yeah, you know, you get everything. Everything you could possibly say comes from the alphabet. So all of the wisdom of God comes from that alphabet of the Old Testament. So now let's get to a scripture that uh, we're going to use and, and tie all this up. We've been very methodical about, okay, there's 22 books of the Old Testament back then, and we understand them to all be you know the same content as, as what we have today. So, Jonathan, let's go to Exodus 25, 31 to 38. This has to do with the construction and the instructions to make the tabernacle. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. So, David, uh, this is important to understand up front before we go into the rest of the reading. What, what do you see the lampstand uh, to mean? Well, th- we're going to go into the Holy of the Tabernacle and talk about the lampstand and a little bit more about another piece of furniture there. But the lampstand was made of pure gold, and just as a foundation principle, everything that has to do with gold in the, uh, in the tabernacle and indeed other parts of Scripture has to do with divine things, things of God. Always equate in your mind gold and divinity because they are definitely connected. So this lampstand of gold was made out of one piece of gold that was beaten and and, uh, molded into the lampstand. And the lampstand was was just that. It had seven bowls on it that had olive oil in it. Uh, You probably have seen pictures of menorahs uh, of the time. Some menorahs have nine, but the scriptural menorah here uh, is seven. And in fact, we've got a pretty good idea of what the one in, in Herod's temple looked like. Remember, we mentioned that the Rome, Romans came against Jerusalem in 70 AD. They destroyed the temple, but they took the temple lampstand with them uh, as, as booty, as spoils of war. And you can go to Rome to this day uh, and see an, inscri- a, a, uh, an engraving uh, that Titus had done that showed them taking this holy lampstand uh, from Herod's temple at that time. So uh, they asked the question, we are suggesting that this represents God's word. It represents God's word. And why? Well, the lampstand was a source of light. In fact, the only source of light in the, in the holy part of the tabernacle. So just as it provided light for the priests to do their work in there and do their worship, God's word provides light to us from a divine source, again, the gold, uh, that allows us to know how to worship our God. Okay, so Jonathan, now let's get back to the scripture and look at how it was made, and and let's pay close attention to the details of its construction. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cup, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand from it one side, and three branches of the lampstand from it the other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in the one branch, a bulb and a flower, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower. 
So for six branches going out from the lampstand. Okay, let, let's pause there for a second because there's a lot of details. So it's talking about the, 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 the main post and then the six branches all together to make a total of seven. But David, it's talking about uh, bulbs and flowers and blossoms and cups. And so, so what's, what's, what's the design looking like? Well, basically, you have what we would describe as flowers, flowers made out of gold. Uh, and each of these flowers had, had three parts. It had, had the cup, the bulb, and the flower itself. So there was three parts to it. Uh, but it describes here uh, where these were. You have the, the central shaft, and you've got four of them there. Then you've got three shafts or three uh, branches on one side, three branches on the other side. And each of those branches had three of these flowers as well. Okay, so we've got these flower arrangements made of three different parts on all seven of those. Okay, Jonathan, let's continue verses 34 to 35. And in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. A bulb shall be under the first part of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it and the bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it, for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. So, David, it sounds like they're just describing the placement of these flowers on all of these different branches. So that, that wasn't as detailed. That's exactly right. Okay, so we've got placement of all of that detail that you just described previously, and now let's wrap it up, verses 36 and 37. Their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece with it, all of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it. Okay. okay so let me summarize. Yes. What you've got is you've got seven branches all together. All right. You've got uh, the main stand in the middle, and the main stand in the middle has four of these flowers, these almond blossom flowers. Then on one side, you had three branches, and each of those branches had three. And they, the they, they side, grow out of that main branch. Yeah, that's right, right. I mean, yeah. I mean think of it as a kind of a U-shape, mm -hmm. and then a smaller U, and then a smaller U, and then one in the middle. That, gotcha. That's probably the best description we can make without showing a picture. Now, here's the thing. Here's where it gets really exciting. How many of these flowers did you have? Well, let's count them. Four in the middle, that's four. Then you had three on each of the, the six branches. Well, three times six is 18. 18 plus four is? 22. 22. How huh. many books in the, in the Hebrew scriptures? Uh, 22. <laughs> wow. Is that a coincidence? Again, all we're doing here, we don't have to do a lot of interpretation. We're looking at these correlations, and the correlations are delightful to find. Okay, so a simple thing. You establish the number of old... To, or, or Hebrew scripture books, and then you see that these flower configurations, they're the exact number on the lampstand, which pictures the holy word of God. Kind of an interesting thing. And somebody could say, well, you know, yeah, that's kind of lucky. Yeah, well, is it? Does God do anything by luck? That's, the, that's kind of the thing that we need to, to look at here. David, go ahead. You know, and, and remember that Moses was given these plans by God. This doesn't, isn't Moses' uh, artistic idea. He wasn't taking a license. He was making it according to the pattern that God gave him when he was up on Mount Sinai. And don't forget either that you've got seven bowls. What did we say seven represented? Divine perfection. This is the fullness of what you want. Okay. Well, well it's good. We learned about the Hebrew scriptures. How about the New Testament? Is that shown here? 
Well, not surprising. There's connection with the New Testament uh, connections as well. Now, how many books in the New Testament? 27. 27. All right. Now, anything interesting about the number 27? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an electrical engineer by training, so I did a lot of math. But 27 is a cubic number. It's three times three times three. Now, by that self, by itself, it doesn't mean anything. But the fact that it's a cubic number sort of suggests something. There are examples in the Bible where cubic numbers are used again and again and again. Let me give you one example here. The, the, uh, holy, the most holy of the tabernacle measured 10 by 10 by 10. Right. And 10 by 10 by 10 is 1,000 and 1,000. We're getting off track here a little bit, but here's another example of a symbol that represents God. So this 3 times 3 times 3 uh, is very interesting in coming up because it's the exact same number of the uh, number of books in the, in the New Testament. Okay. All right. So I know that there's more. Go ahead. Okay, well, <laughs> let's say let's let's look at the Old Testament, New Testament together. Let's add all the books as, as they were originally. You had twenty-two books in the Old Testament, and you've got twenty-seven in the New Testament. So if you add those numbers together, twenty-two plus twenty-seven, you get forty-nine. Um, anything interesting about forty-nine? Well, it's seven times seven. That's the thing. I yeah, know. Okay, yeah. I know that. <laughs> Again, so, and remember, we already said seven is a number that represents divine perfection. So the square of that shows utter completeness of what God has in mind. Okay, so you've got this seven times seven, seven being this uh, this spiritual number having to do with God on this golden lampstand, which is in the Word of God and the gold representing divine things. You put all these little pieces together, and, and you know it seems like it, okay, it's really developing into something very, very, very significant there. What about, you'd mentioned that there's another piece of furniture or something else in the holy that you wanted to touch on here. Yeah, and this brings us now to the modern version of the Bible we have, the Protestant version. The Protestant version of our Bible has 66 books. Now, this number 66, we're going to see it comes out of this as well. Let's stay with the lampstand for a moment. Remember, we said that each of those 22 flowers had three parts. There were three bulbs, three flowers, and three cups. So how much does it add up to? 22 cups, 22 bulbs, 22 flowers equals? Uh, 22, 22, 66. 66 parts. <laughs> 66 parts. Well, isn't that interesting? Another curiosity? Well, if we go over to the other side of the tabernacle now, we have another piece of furniture called the table of showbread. And we have a scripture that just gives us a little bit of a description of the table of showbread. And that's found in Leviticus 24, verses 5 and 6. Then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it, two-tenths of an ephah and B in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. Okay, thank you. So here we have the table of showbread. And what's, what's on it? Why? Showbread. And we just read the scripture that describes the showbread. The showbread was to be 12 loaves, and 12, of course, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. You can see that there's numerology here that even relates back to the literal nation. But notice how it's arranged. God didn't say, you know, do it this way or that way. He said very specific. He says two rows of six. You have six, and you have six. Six, six, mean anything to you? 66. 66 <laughs> again. Again, this is interpretive. And we fully admit that this is not something that you that you build a faith structure on, but it is something that connects up and confirms to those that look at it 
with the eyes of faith. Again, we don't want to make too much about it, but as you can see, as we were going through these, these things just per, uh, uh, precipitated out. We didn't have to ring and whatnot. The numbers are there, and they relate directly back to numbers that show us what God's Word should look like. Okay, so, you know, David, just one, one other quick detail on this before we wrap this whole thing up for today. Um, Jonathan, you were asking a question earlier, you know, when we were doing our prep work. Remember about the, uh, the, the, the symbology? Yes, um, you said the candlestick represents the Word of God, but also the table of showbread represents the Word of God. And to me, that's very confusing, because shouldn't it just be one or the other? How, how, do, how does that work? Well, that's a very studious question, Jonathan, and a very good question as well. Why would God have two different symbols representing the same thing? And there actually is a, a pretty nice uh, answer to it, an answer that appeals to our hearts as well as our heads. What is the purpose of the Bible in the life of the Christian? Well, number one, it's to provide guidance. It shows us where we are to go. It shows us how we are to step. But it also provides food for us. It nourishes us so that we can grow in our Christian character and in our appreciation. So when you look at these two symbols, you have the light of God's Word providing direction shown in the lampstand, and you have the nourishment of God's Word shown in the showbread. Remarkable. Remarkable. So, you know, when you look at the numbers and objective evaluation of numbers, you can't help but connect scriptures. You've got both the historical scriptures of, of, of the old times plus the modern times. It just gives us a sense. Now, look, you can say it's a coincidence, just like you said, and, and, I, and I think that bears repeating. But through the eyes of faith, you say, wow, God gives us a lot of ways to just tie things together so we know that we are looking at the inspired Word of God. David, we're, we're pretty much wrapping up. Your final thoughts on today's episode. Well, again, finishing up on today and even looking back over the past uh, three um, segments or, or three parts of this, we see how astounding God's Word is and how reliable it is uh, as a basis for our faith. Today, we looked at uh, the, the, the question, did Jesus really say this? Uh, in one case, he didn't. In another case, he did. But we were able to determine what it was that Jesus said and what it was that Jesus meant. Also looked a little bit at some of the challenges that translators have. We also recognize that there are some texts of Scripture that are spurious, going back to our previous uh, parts as well. That whole bracketed section there in the book of John uh, is uh, seriously doubtful as uh, being inclusive in Scripture. And we even looked at the strange curiosity of Paul quoting a scripture that wasn't a scripture, and yet he <laughs> made it a scripture. And that was kind of a lovely thing to discover. And then finally, we, we concluded with a little step into uh, the subject of Bible numerology. And believe me, this was a little step. We just put our very, our, our pinky toe in to see some of, the, some of the ways in which God communicates with us by mathematics and uh, with the eye of faith, these things just flowered beautifully to us. So, David, thank, thanks so much. And, you know, folks, we've done a three-part series here, but I will tell you that we are not done. No, there's much more to come. Now, the next couple of parts of this series are not going to be for a little while, but we're coming back. David's going to be back with us because there's more to uncover. There's more to look at. There's more to make sure we understand so we can get down to what the real Word of God is and build our faith on the inspiration of God-breathed words. That's what we want to do with all of this. That's the point of taking all this time and asking the questions, has the Bible been mistranslated and misunderstood? We want to build our faith on biblical truth. Think about it. 
Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly, greatly appreciate it. And coming up next week, completely different subject, but a very important subject, especially for the conditions of the world we're in. You know, we're coming up to the American holiday of Thanksgiving. Next week's subject, how can we be thankful after the year that we've had? There are significant, beautiful, inspirational answers. We'll talk to you next week.